Hi everyone, this is Maria Wells with the Seven Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Erin Burry. She's been named top 30 under 30. She's an entrepreneur, marketer, former journalist, and a startup advisor and investor. She's a co-founder and CEO at Willful, which is an online estate planning platform that makes it easy for all Canadians to create a will in less than 20 minutes. Prior to starting her own company, she held leadership roles at communication agencies like 88, Startup Publication Beta Kit, and Sprouter. Erin is a frequent speaker with Speaker Spotlight. She also writes a column for the Financial Post and is a tech commentator at CTV News. She has appeared in publications like New York Times, Forbes, and CNN, and we cannot wait to learn more from her today. And with that, please welcome Erin. Thank you for joining us today, Erin. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background, around your story, how you got started, where you are right now? I am very much an entrepreneur today, but that was not the case when I started out my career. Uh, I grew up in a house with two parents who worked at big companies, uh, Nortel, which is no longer around. So some of you younger millennials may not remember it. But you know, my mom was a marketing executive and she had a corner office and she traveled for work all the time. And I just thought she had the coolest job ever. So my aspiration when I was younger was to grow up and similarly work for a Fortune 100 company. And my pinnacle goal was to have a corner office uh, just like my mom. But that was very quickly disrupted when I uh, graduated school at the height of the recession in uh, 2007, 2008. Uh, And I was working at a mid-sized PR agency and had the opportunity to go join a startup as a second employee. And uh, it's kind of like that movie Sliding Doors where Gwyneth Paltrow can, you know, get on the subway or not, and they show what happens to her life in both scenarios. I feel like that was my sliding doors moment. If I hadn't taken that job at the startup, I'd probably be hopefully on my way to that corner office. But instead, I've gone on this totally different path of working for startups, working as a journalist, reporting about startups, running a marketing agency that worked with startup companies, and now being an entrepreneur and running my own company. I love the story. And I mean, there's so many questions because you've been featured as top 30 under 30. You did marketing, you're a tech expert, you're an entrepreneur, you're a speaker, so many things. First of all, how do you balance it all? It's a great question. I mean, I will say I'm a very organized person and I also love to work. So uh, the answer is some days it doesn't feel like I'm doing it all. I certainly don't love cooking and don't spend time doing a lot of the things that keep other people busy. Uh, And my husband, who's also my co-founder, is always yelling at me to stop working and to to watch Netflix instead. So I certainly don't want to display this image of having it all and doing it all because that's not the case. But I think, you know, I've tried to curate my career and the things that I focus my time on to all kind of work together. So, you know, my speaking engagements tend to be a benefit to Willful and to get us in front of audiences that could be partners or customers. And my, you know, any side projects that I'm working on either teach me something new and are really fun to to work on because I love learning or are something I love spending my time on or are something that serve my kind of core focus, which is Willful. I love it. So then as a marketer, did you always think that you would have a career in that space, helping companies uh, create their presence, make sure that they grow and expand through different marketing channels? Was that always the goal? It was always my goal to work in marketing, which is interesting because I'm a journalism grad. And so most journalism grads aspire to work at 
the New York Times or be a foreign correspondent, not me. I was one of the only people in my class of 2007 who really wanted to go straight into marketing. And that was because my mom also went to the same journalism school that I did. And I saw her using the skills that she acquired, you know, being a great writer, being a great communicator. And those skills helped her to succeed in a career in marketing. Uh, and also, I'm going to be honest, I looked at the average pay scale for journalists and the average pay scale for marketers. And I thought, you know what, I think this is a better idea. Uh, so I always knew that I wanted to be in marketing, but I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, there's, you know, if you're listening and you're in marketing, you know that you know, digital marketing is so different from PR, which is so different from internal communications and that's so different from paid acquisition and growth marketing. So, you know, I don't know that I necessarily had a picture in mind of what I would be doing or what area I wanted to focus on until my final year of university where I took a PR class and I learned about public relations and how to kind of craft a story through the media. And I thought it was a great complement to my training as a journalist. And so that's why I decided to kind of narrow in on PR as my area of focus after I graduated. I guess as a skill, is it easy to develop those skills as an entrepreneur who maybe didn't have a background in university, or is it quite difficult to hone them and teach yourself the skill and you should probably hire someone for your company? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to me, anything can be learned, right? If you're a resourceful, smart person, you can learn to do anything. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to write a great press release or to put together a social media plan, but uh, it takes time, right? So I think the question I would always ask as an entrepreneur is, what are my greatest strengths naturally? What are the skill sets that I need to fill? And which of those do I have the time and appetite to learn myself? And which would benefit the company most if I were to learn them? And, and execute them over time versus where should I be outsourcing? So for example, in my own company, I very much lead the PR strategy with our external agency because that's where my background and, and skills lie. But I absolutely outsource legal and finance and some of those things where, you know, it's probably not to our benefit for me to learn that from the ground up myself. That totally makes sense. So when I was browsing your website, it did say that you are an expert in marketing to millennials, but also in how to attract and retain millennial talent. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? For sure. I mean, listen, I am an older millennial, so I was named 30 under 30 a long time ago, and I am 35 and a half right now. So I'm usually the oldest person at my company because I don't work for a Fortune 500 company. I've, for most of my career, uh, worked for organizations of 15 or fewer people. I've often employed and hired and worked with younger folks. So, you know, now I guess they would be Gen Z, but a few years ago, it was all kind of millennials. And around this time, a few years ago, there was so much chatter in the media and in companies about how to deal with millennials. There was this bad rap that we earned, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, you know, we're lazy and entitled and we want to be a VP with a million dollar salary on day four of our job. And that was just so antithetical to my experience working with millennial talent. I found them so resourceful, so hardworking, 
so just interested and wanting to absorb things. But I did find as well that it was true that they were motivated by different things. Millennials, myself included, we want to enjoy the people that we spend time with. It's not just a clock in and clock as how do I create an environment and also a perks and benefits package that actually appeals to millennials and makes them want to stay. For us, that included things like Vacation Fund, which was a vacation savings matching company that includes things like flexible work arrangements, especially during COVID, where you can work remotely and not have to show up in the office every day. So I think those themes of flexibility, of flexible benefits, and of wellness, things like massages, HSAs, etc., are so much more prevalent with a millennial audience versus maybe older generations. I love this. So I guess when you said that you provide the flexible arrangements, can we jump into the COVID, I guess COVID pandemic and times, how did it affect the company? I know you mentioned that now you're working from the office, but it's absolutely voluntary attendance. You can work from home. Can you talk more a little bit about that process and how productive is your team during this times? Just like every small business owner, I was really stressed out when COVID hit, both personally because we were navigating it as people, but also because I had no idea whether the impact on Willful would be positive or negative. Now, Willful is an estate planning platform. We help Canadians make wills online. So fortunately, people were coming to create wills in droves because unfortunately, they were very stressed and anxious about the state of the world. So the motivation to come and create their will wasn't great, but we did see a big influx in interest and traffic. And concurrently to that kind of massive influx to our business, we were trying to navigate thoughtfully leading a team through an unprecedented global pandemic where people were personally anxious and personally stressed out. And I think it was a blessing that we were really busy because it gave people something to kind of focus on that wasn't just doom scrolling Twitter. But we also had to be thoughtful in saying, you know, we know this is not business as usual. We know that there are stressors outside of your daily work. And so you know, number one, talk about it. We shared our own experiences with, with anxiety and with how we were feeling. We hope we made that okay for the team. Uh, we gave top-ups to therapy credits so people could, you know, seek professional help during this time to help with things like anxiety. And we gave paid days off, you know, a, a few Fridays during the spring just so that people could take a breather, especially because we were so busy. But it was definitely a challenge in that nobody has really gone through something like this before, not even the most seasoned of HR experts. So we just kind of defaulted to being empathetic and just treating our team like people instead of just treating them like a commodity or a number. Very, very, very inspiring because I know that a lot of companies and small businesses could not do that. And that's obviously amazing. Now for the, I guess, willful, let's jump into that. And I'm just trying to understand the motivation. I mean, you've talked before about the motivation to start in the company, but could you tell our listeners maybe a little bit more of how did you make that jump from being the marketing expert to being now the tech expert actually building your own business with your partner? I'm of the belief that you are either someone who's a born entrepreneur or you're someone who kind of develops it over time. And I mentioned I was not the born entrepreneur. I was not the person starting a million businesses in high school. And I aspired to work for a big company. Whereas my husband, Kevin, who's now my co-founder, 
is absolutely the other type. He is so entrepreneurial. He's always had a million ideas. And he used to call me the dream killer because he would come to me every three days with some ridiculous new business idea and I would have to shoot him down. But it was after his uncle passed away a few years ago and you know, his family was sitting around with all of these unanswered questions. And Kevin was, you know, using tools like Wealthsimple and thought, you know, why isn't there a better way for Canadian families to have these conversations, prepare for something that's, you know, unfortunately inevitable. So that was where the inspiration came from. And when he came to me with the idea, I said, could you please pick a less sexy business idea? Like, estate planning, this is what you want to focus your time on. You're not an estate lawyer. This is like not an exciting topic. But as we dug deeper and realized how big of a problem this is that, you know, the majority of Canadians don't have a will, how arduous it is if you don't have one on your family, how much longer it takes. I became very passionate about it. So he started the business kind of on his own as a solo founder. And I was running a marketing agency at the time that worked with companies like his. So he worked with our agency to you know, do the design and branding and build out the website. And so I got to be intimately involved with it from the beginning, not just because we were working together at the agency, but also because you know anyone who's listening and has a partner who's an entrepreneur knows you become their business coach, their therapist, their you know honorary team member just by virtue of living with them. And when I decided to move on from the agency and do something else, it was just kind of a natural fit. I had become so passionate about the problem we were solving. I thought my skill set really aligned with the gaps that he had in the business. You know, although I had no idea if we would work well together, I decided to take the plunge. I love it. Okay, so so many questions. First of all, uh, for all the entrepreneurs who are trying to do their business, start a new idea, build a startup, obviously one of the obstacles that they get is their family and friends always say that, you know, this is not going to work or this is never going to happen. Or, you know, have you thought about this? Are you sure you're going to quit this high paying job to start the company? And you obviously went on the other side with your husband telling him that, you know, all of his previous ideas, maybe not so much, but this one is going to work. So how did he convince you? And like, what should have he done? Like, was it a presentation that he did for you? Was there analysis that he ran by you and it made sense? I would like to say it was as formal and thought out as that. But to be honest, him embarking on the company wasn't so much about the company as it was the fact that he hated his job. He worked in trades at a cement plant. And his uncle, who had passed away, unfortunately uh, committed suicide, and he had worked at that plant for decades. And Kevin already didn't like his job and kind of thought, what if I stay? Will I get into a, a similar mindset? So it almost became just an imperative for him to get out of that job and to get back into a better mental state. Uh, so me giving him not permission, but blessing to, to quit that job and to embark on this company was as much about my husband's mental health as it was about the business idea. And his aunt actually gave him a little bit of seed funding in order to start this idea because she was obviously really, really excited about it as well. And yeah, it was just kind of take a year, work on this. I can keep things afloat because I have a great job and uh, we'll see where it goes. And I don't think either of us expected that it would ever get to the stage where it is today, especially because neither Kevin and I or are estate lawyers and neither of us are technical people. So really, if you're thinking about a will platform, you probably want an estate lawyer and you probably want someone who can code it and build it. So the fact that we don't have those skill sets and have been able to build it up, I think is testament to the fact that Kevin has 
greatest skill is being resourceful and finding people to fill those gaps in his skill set and getting them to be passionate about an idea. I mean, if you've ever met an entrepreneur, they're, they're so infectious in terms of their excitement and their origin story and the problem that they're solving. And really, I see Kevin's role at Willful almost as being the hype man for estate planning, right? He gets people excited about it, myself included, about a topic that most people probably actively avoid thinking about. It's crazy how something this positive came obviously from something really negative and great for your husband taking the plunge and starting this entrepreneurial journey. In terms of working together, and I mean, you've mentioned that you and Kevin have skill sets that are complementing to each other. A lot of people who pick their partners and their co-founders sometimes don't fully think about the long-term plan. What would be your advice for those people? And then also for people who are together, husband and wife, working on a business. I'm sure it's not easy. So we got married in October of 2018, although we had been together for about 10 years already. And we became co-founders about six months later. Again, we didn't really know how we would work together. We never had before. Uh, and what I've learned is number one, you know, have the conversations before you start about what happens if it doesn't work out. And this is not true just for husband and wife co-founders. This is true for any co-founder relationship. I don't care if you're friends, your brother, sister, your strangers, you need to talk to your co-founder about, you know, what's your ideal outcome for this business? What's a number that would make you excited if we were offered it to sell? You know, how important is work to you and how much time are you going to be spending on this versus the other things in your life? And what happens if one of us wants out or it's not working? And so for Kevin and I, we sat down before I ever had day one at the company and we said, our relationship is more important than this company. And so if it were ever threatened, here's exactly what would happen. Here's who would exit the company. Here's how we would continue it. And so, you know, having those conversations, it was almost like a prenup for our company where we, we talked about, you know, let's be real. A lot of co-founder relationships don't work out. We want to go into this with eyes open and know exactly what happens if it doesn't work. Uh, so I think that's probably the smartest thing you can do to mitigate, you know, all the scenarios that can happen down the line. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, really understand where each of your strengths are and allow your partner to kind of focus on the things that they love. Like Kevin's strengths are not finance and operations and HR and some of the stuff that I really love. So it made sense for him to just kind of focus on the product and being an evangelist for the company and kind of being out there in the community versus me focusing on some of the kind of operational sides of the business. Uh, and we also have very different working styles. I am a total type A, organized, to-do lists, like calendar blocking. And Kevin is very much the opposite. He's a total creative. He's not as you know, type A as I am. So I think it's really understanding how you work with each other and how you work independently and then creating systems that allow each person to be themselves. I love the story. I love the story. And I mean, you're doing a great job. Now about Willful, when do I have to create a will? And I know on the website, it says after purchasing a house, having a major event, like having a baby, how often do I, should I relook at the will? Is there a specific age that I'm supposed to look into it? What would be your suggestion? Yeah. I mean, listen, this is a podcast for millennials. So I know most people listening to this probably haven't even, you're aware that a will is a thing, but you haven't really thought about it in your own life. And I was certainly the same, you know, when Kevin decided to embark on starting Willful, we owned property and we were common law at that time. So we were absolutely candidates that should have had a will, but it just wasn't something that 
we prioritized. And now that I'm on the other side and I not only have a will, but I know so much more about estate planning, I'm really passionate about just educating people about what a will is, why you might want to think about it, and what happens if you don't have one. So that, you know, you might not do it tomorrow, but at least you have a seed planted in your head to start thinking about it. So really a will is a legal document that distributes your assets to people that you choose called your beneficiaries. And it assigns roles to take care of dependents like children and pets and someone to act as your executor, someone who's going to actually carry out the wishes in your will. And if you're, you know, 19 and you live at home and you have $5 in a savings account and you don't have any pets, children, etc., you may not need to think about a will. Really, you want to start thinking about a will when you have any sort of meaningful assets or dependents. So dependents could be children, but they could also be pets because you can assign a pet guardian and leave money for their care in your will. Or it could be when you accumulate assets. So that might be a car, a home, etc. And if you pass away without a will, there's basically a provincial formula that dictates who gets your stuff and the court will appoint people to take care of your children. So really a will puts you in the driver's seat and it also gives your family a blueprint to follow. You know, like Kevin's family sitting around and kind of asking questions and not knowing and hoping they were doing right by this relative, a will can kind of speak for you and give your family the confidence that they're doing, you know, honoring your legacy. There's my sales pitch on why you need a will, when you might want to start thinking about one, but I completely understand that it's not something that the average 20-something is likely thinking about. Does the will expire? Great question. It expires. Well, it doesn't expire. It comes into effect when you pass away. So it does not expire. If you created a will when you were 21 and you passed away at 91, that document would still be legally valid. The only issue is it would be very out of date right? So you want to update your will to include things like the birth of a child or when you get married. Many provinces actually invalidate a will when you get married. When you get divorced, you don't want your ex to be named in your will. You want to replace them. So, you know, the thing that I always advise is you do your taxes every year. You don't want to do your taxes, but you do them because you have to. And why not you know, review your will or any estate planning documents every year around the time that you do your taxes and combine these two inevitable things together? I love it. I mean, I have a will, but you're right. I should probably relook at it because a lot of things have happened since the past couple of years. Now, for Willful, if I am Ontario resident, I move on to Alberta or a different province, Does it work for everyone within the country? Are you guys global? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we're Canada only. We do have counterparts like Trust and Will in the US whom we're partnered with, uh, but we're in seven Canadian provinces right now and expanding across the country. When you make a will in one province, it's governed by the provincial law there. So every province has its own set of legislation that governs wills and estates. And if you move provinces, it's always best practice to update your will so that it adheres to all of those provincial guidelines. But most provinces recognize a will made in another Canadian province. So if, for example, you lived in Ontario and moved to another province and passed away with that Ontario will, it's likely going to be recognized by the courts, uh, although there can be some tax implications. So it's always just good to speak with a financial advisor or tax advisor about that and to keep your will up to date. 
I love how educational and informational this is. Thank you so much. You're right. Nobody really knows and seeks out information about a will. And it's something, as you said, taxes. You don't really want to always do them, but you find a right advisor and you get it done. So this is a great topic that nobody usually talks about. Now, for every founder who is trying to start a startup and maybe build an app, because as we know, almost everything these days is digital, we were faced with the same issue, I guess. You had a great idea. You had to create a website. You had to figure out how to build it. Both of you and Kevin are not technical co-founders, I believe. How did you go about that process? Did you hire someone? Did you outsource it? How long did it take? Could you walk us please through that process? One of the hardest parts of launching a company is if you're not a technical person, finding someone who can build your vision. And I've heard so many horror stories of people who have hired developers or agencies who are just unreliable, who disappear, who don't do great work. And we were very lucky to find someone in our network who has been fantastic and is still involved with the company today. Uh, And so I guess my network first. And if that's not someone in your network, look for referrals. Make sure that you do diligence, talk to references, talk to past clients, talk to past employers, uh, and make sure that they're the right fit for what you're building. For example, if you need a backend person, don't hire a front-end person. You know, Find someone that you know who speaks the language so that you know that you're hiring the right person. For us, it was just a Facebook post. Kevin put up a Facebook post and it just so happened that someone he went to high school with was a full-time firefighter, but on the side, he teaches coding and does side projects. So... He and Kevin worked together for months to get the platform launched. And he's still on board as a kind of consultant with Willful. He works with us about 10 to 20 hours a week when he's not fighting fires. And he's a just wonderful communicator and an amazing part of the team. And we got so lucky in finding someone we could trust. Uh, and I think part of that is it came through our personal network. And so we had that kind of level of trust that doesn't always exist when you're just hiring someone off the internet. This is incredible and obviously amazing and good for you guys because, as you said, lots of horror stories. We hear them all the time from different co-founders where sometimes uh, their ideas must be or might be ripped off with a different country and then you see copycats popping up all over the internet. So great for you. How long did it take to build the whole platform out from start to finish, ready to launch, ready for users to use it? About six months. The original seed of an idea was planted in, I guess, 2015. So it was not a really fast thing. It was, you know, a year or two of thinking about it, doing research, planning it on the side while working full time. And then from the moment that it was kind of like, okay, this is what we're doing. And we, you know, raised a bit of a friends and family round of funding to actually fund this developer who was going to build it for us. And that took about six months of working with local estate lawyers on the legal content, building out the platform, getting the brand and the design done. So yeah, so it was about six months. And I I love your comment about kind of copycats and competitors. When I was a tech journalist, I was a tech journalist for about two years. And I spent time interviewing hundreds of founders. And I met founders so often who would say they were working on a quote unquote stealth startup. And they wouldn't tell you what it is because they were so afraid of their idea being stolen. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is in the startup world is that ideas are a dime a dozen and execution is everything. And I'm really a firm believer that, you know, most people aren't reinventing the wheel. We certainly were not the first online will platform. Legalwills.ca has been around since you know, for about 20 years. And the the founder of that, Tim, has done an amazing job. Uh, We just saw a gap in the market 
for a platform that spoke more to us as a millennial audience and that, you know, took a bit of a different approach with the product. So you can't be too precious with your ideas. You need to get feedback on them and you need to get feedback outside your personal network because your friends and family are going to tell you it's a fantastic idea. But when push comes to shove, they're not necessarily the customers who are going to be paying you. And we had copycats pop up after us. We see them pop up every few months. And instead of looking in the rear view mirror, we're very focused on the road ahead. It's really easy to get distracted by competitors and to focus on what they're posting on social media, what they're launching, when they're in the media. And it's just not healthy. It's not a way to grow a company. You should be cognizant of, of what's happening in your market. But I remember Michael Katchen from Wealthsimple, very successful founder. At an event, he was talking about uh, robo-advisor clones that kind of popped up after him. And he just said, listen, if we just focused on copying our competitors, then we wouldn't be the innovator. They're copying us for a reason. And I always try to keep that in mind. So if you're listening and you have an idea, talk to people about it. No one's going to steal your idea. And if they do steal your idea and execute it better than you, then, you know, maybe that's a sign that it wasn't meant to be. Which is absolutely true. I agree. I mean, first of all, you guys proved that you were in an overnight success. You did take time. It took effort and a lot of research. And then execution is key. And you clearly are executing well enough to make sure that your customers stay, they benefit. And I guess you've got some great feedback. And I I want to jump into this. Did all your friends and family say such a great idea, let's do it? Or did you get some negative feedback and how did you battle that? It's a great question because one of the biggest lessons we learned is you can't just listen to your personal network. Uh, the idea for Willful actually started out as a, an online account that would help you store everything outside of the will. You know, not the legal document creation, but what you want done with your social media accounts, burial and funeral wishes, messages to loved ones, all of those types of things. And when we talked to friends and family about it, they said, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That's definitely helpful to family members and we would definitely use that. And so Kevin built a prototype on something like Wix, something very affordable, and kind of launched it. And he heard crickets, you know, all of those friends and family that had said, oh, this is an amazing idea, weren't actually putting their money where their mouth was to pay for the product and use the product. And we kind of discovered in that moment that number one, people hate thinking about death. And so, you know, we had built a vitamin, we had built a nice to have instead of building a painkiller, something that people really needed, not just a nice to have, and then as nice as possible about it. And they're also in many cases, not your customer. So you really have to figure out who is my customer persona? What problem am I trying to solve? And for whom? And talk to those people and they can actually give you some unvarnished feedback about your business. And for most entrepreneurs, product market fit, this elusive holy grail of product market fit comes when you understand who your customer is and you know that you're solving a problem for them. So from actually going out and talking to people who are potential customers instead of just our friends and family, that's where we learned, you know, the will is kind of the starting point. You know, everyone would always say, oh, we'd like a will platform. And we'd be like, no, it's kind of like that, but it's everything outside the will. So at a certain point, we had to just listen and be like, oh, people want to do their will online and we can build a product to solve that, which is when we pivoted that original idea to Willful. Uh, so I also think it's important to talk about those absolute failures because a lot of times when you hear from an entrepreneur, it can sound like all sunshine and roses. And there were definitely lots of small and big failures along the way at the company. 
And I'm so grateful you're sharing this because it's true. None of the apps and companies that we use now on a daily basis ever started as the thing that they're now. Like, you know, a lot of founders started with something else, just as you said, storing everything outside of Will and with failing iteration, getting customer feedback and doing this over and over again. That's how you learn what your product and final version of it should be. So I guess jumping into the failures, pitfalls, successes, if you could find some advice to people who are building their businesses now, apart from everything we've discussed, what would be that you know, piece of knowledge you would want to pass down? Oh, this is an easy one because I made the mistake of not doing this. Read the book Venture Deals by Bradfeld. It's a book about all types of startup financing, and it walks through everything from angel investors to the structure of venture capital firms, how to read a term sheet, an offer for investment, crowdfunding, how to navigate an acquisition offer. And to me, it should be required reading before starting a company because you know, similar to the sliding doors example I gave earlier, when you're starting a company, you have two doors that you have to choose from. Am I going to fund this company myself? Am I going to bootstrap it myself and keep 100% of the company, but maybe grow a bit more slowly and be very cognizant of how I'm spending money? Or am I going to take external money? Am I going to bring on investment and give up a piece of my equity and my ownership in my company, but be able to scale faster? And then if I choose the investment route, am I going to take money from angel investors, venture capitalists? You know, Am I going to do a crowdfunding campaign? Because each of those types of funding comes with very different obligations, expectations, and a pace at which the company has to grow. So that's the best piece of advice I have because you can't go back in time and change that. After you've given up a piece of your company to an investor, you've made a decision and you're on that path and you can never go back to day one of your company when you own 100% again, unless you you know, finagle it like Michael Dell where he took the company public, sold it, brought it back, privatized it. That's the anomaly, not the rule. So that's my best piece of advice. And, and also just be intentional about the type of company you're trying to build. You know, there's nothing wrong with building a lifestyle business that is bootstrapped, that where you make good money and you enjoy quality of life. Not every startup has to be the next Instagram or Airbnb. You don't have to build a billion dollar company to be a successful entrepreneur. And I think the media often forces us into thinking that the only path for entrepreneurship is the rocket ship. And that comes with a lot of personal sacrifice. I love it. It's kind of like, you know, know your way out on the way in. Make sure that you know everything. If you talk to an investor, one of the first questions they'll ask you is, what's your exit strategy? You know, you shouldn't just be starting a company because of a big, you know, seven-figure exit because, you know, chances are a million things that will happen to prevent that. But you should know your exit strategy, right? You should know who are the types of folks that would buy your company why would they buy your company? And then you can actually start to create a strategy around engaging with those folks, partnering with them, and getting on their radar so when the time comes, they're more interested in putting in an offer. I like it. So I guess jumping into the marketing and how you guys had to market Willful, because obviously in the past three years, digital social media channels marketing in those areas have changed drastically. And obviously you have the background that you bring in with Willful. Can you walk us through how did you market the platform? How difficult was it? Did you have to hire someone else? What was the strategy? And then also lead into the young founders who are trying to start companies or not so young founders who are trying to embark on creating new companies now. 
what should be their strategy and steps? I think for me, I always start with who is your customer and building out your customer personas. When I ran a marketing agency that worked with a lot of tech companies, I'd always have these founders who were clients of mine who would say, I want to be in TechCrunch. And I'd say, okay, but you're selling to new moms and new moms are not reading TechCrunch. And so a lot of people just want to market on the channels that they read or that they use. And they kind of forget that they're marketing to the end consumer of their product. They're not marketing to their ego. So the first step is to create customer personas. So for Willful, it's very obvious who's coming to Willful and why. You're a new parent. You're acquiring a large asset. So maybe you're a new homeowner. You're retiring and you're getting your affairs in order. Or unfortunately, there are also customer personas of folks who have been diagnosed with an illness or who recently had you know, a death in the family. And so they're thinking about this stuff. So once you've created those customer personas, you can start to talk to some people who fit into those categories and ask them, you know, where do you spend time online and offline? How would you start a search for something like a will? And it became very clear to us that Willful is a very search-driven business. If you're looking to get a will, the first thing that you're going to do is either look up some information or search something like get a will in Ontario. Uh, So we have a big strategy that's focused around content marketing, so educational content, media coverage that can help improve our search rankings, paid search on things like Google and Bing. And we also do a lot of partnerships. So I think the thing to think about when you're a founder is not just how am I going to reach my customer directly through channels like Facebook or Instagram, but also how am I going to tap into audiences of people uh, and communities that already exist, right? Because when you're a startup founder, you don't have a lot of marketing dollars. You don't have a lot of time. And those gatekeepers, the people who are already talking to your customer about similar things are the best way to do that. So at Willful, we've partnered with everyone from Wealthsimple to you know CAA to parenting groups because those folks are already talking to our customers and we can achieve a higher level of distribution through those partners than we could just one-to-one on our own. So in terms of the channels, I guess, and the marketing budget, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all about the finance that the company has. If you start in a business, you don't have a lot of resources to use. And as you said, depending on where you find your dollars, with your borrow or bootstrap, you got to go lean. So what would be your suggestion to founders who are starting out? Where should they put majority of their dollars? And what percentage of the total financial model they should contribute to the marketing dollars? Yeah. So for us, marketing budget is a very simple calculation. How many customers are we trying to acquire this month? And how much do we want to spend to acquire those customers? You multiply those two things together and that's your marketing budget, right? So I don't think it has to be complicated. It really should be something that scales along with the growth of the company. Uh, So that's how we kind of develop the overarching budget and how we spend the budget is really just answering a simple question. What's the easiest path to get us to that goal for customers? So in our case, we spend our marketing budget primarily on, you know, we have a PR agency and we know that PR is a really great generator of organic traffic for us and it improves our SEO. So for us, it's worth spending our marketing budget on. Uh, We spend a lot on paid search because, again, we're a search-driven company and we can help to capture some of that traffic. We're increasingly experimenting with new marketing channels, for example, uh, podcast advertising and things like that. And then listen, I think 
everyone thinks it's a bad thing to be a founder with no marketing budget. I actually think it forces you to be more resourceful and creative and to try unpaid new channels when the big guys won't touch them. So for example, this summer, I got really into TikTok because I had been a consumer of TikTok for many months during COVID. And I was like, hey, there's nobody talking about estate planning. All of these older millennials like me have joined TikTok because of COVID and being bored. Maybe I can kind of carve out a niche and actually market willful on a platform that seems very counterintuitive to market on. And so... I created a bunch of videos and educational content on wills and estate planning. And I had something like 200,000 views within the first few weeks on estate planning videos and tons of great comments and customers who reached out to say, Oh, I saw you guys on TikTok. So I would never have done that if I had a million dollar marketing budget and I was able to just buy a TV ad, right? So lack of budget, lack of time actually is a blessing because it forces you to be more creative and it allows you to be on channels that your competitors often aren't. Basically getting scrappy and finding out new ways of doing things. So now, is there a preferred strategy on TikTok? Is there a secret sauce that we're all supposed to use? Because, you know, it's difficult to scale in Instagram now because it's just so many functions in the algorithm just prevents you from, I guess, gaining your following. So TikTok is the new thing. Are any suggestions there how to make it? Yeah. I mean, listen, I lurked and consumed content for months before I ever posted a video. And so I think that's my first tip is just understand the type of content that works on each channel. The type of content you'd post on TikTok is so different from Instagram, which is so different from Facebook versus Snapchat. So cater your content to the platform that you're on and the audience that you're trying to reach there. To me, education is key. So if you are a company that's using TikTok, you can't use it as a sales channel. I was not on TikTok saying, buy a will from Willful. I was on TikTok saying, hey, people in Canada, did you know that if you die without a will, these are the things that happen and making it kind of educational and engaging and fun. So I think resist the urge to be extremely salesy. TikTok is about great creators and telling great stories. And so you have to really abide by those unwritten rules when launching content on that platform. I love it. Such a good strategy. I need, to, I need to create something for myself just for the seven millennials. So I think I might just take clips of people telling things and that's going to be the TikTok. That's what I'm thinking right now. I think it'll be great. <laughs> I think you can definitely find a niche of millennials on TikTok. That's for sure. Perfect. I guess now on the topic of consumption, what kind of resources, books, uh, channels, subscriptions do you use to make sure that you stay up to date either in your industry, on tech, on marketing, everything else in between? I definitely subscribe to a bunch of email newsletters. So for marketing, I like subscribing to The Message, which is a Canadian marketing publication and strategy magazine. For HR and operations, I love the Bright and Early newsletter. It's an HR consultancy in Toronto. And I also love Raw Signal Group's newsletter, which is all about management and leadership. And it's also a great resource. And for marketers, I subscribe to Grow Class. Sarah Stockdale is the founder of Grow Class, and it's a great marketing course. And they put out a lot of great email content and have lots of free webinars. So that's definitely something that I, I follow and read. For books, uh, I mentioned venture deals already, but I love reading about all things operations and management. So uh, usually I'll read one fiction book and then I'll pepper it in with a business book so that I'm not always just reading work-related stuff. But I just bought The One Minute Manager, which was recommended by our new venture investor as his favorite management book. 
Uh, and some of the others I loved were the startup CEO, which is kind of a manual to what your job is as CEO as you scale a company. And I love Ross Signal Group's book, How Effed Up Is Your Management? And then I'm also a big podcast person. So I listen to podcasts like How I Built This to be inspired by entrepreneurial stories, The Pitch, which is like the podcast version of Shark Tank, which I love for inspiration. And I love Radical Candor, which is a podcast all about how to deliver honest, constructive feedback in the workplace and the power of transparency. So those are a few of the resources I love. Thank you for sharing those. I love the books and I do need to pick up a few of those because some of them I I haven't read. There's also an app called, I think it's called Blinkist and it basically synopsizes books and gives you the main takeaways. And that was actually one of the secret weapons that my investor, our new venture capital investor outlined to me because I said, what books should I read? What books do you recommend to founders? And he's like, listen, nobody has time to read full books use something like Blinkist, get the core messages from it. And then the ones that you resonate with, you can read the full version after that. I love it. I do use Blinkist and I also use Audible. I mean, it's full books, but somebody reads them for you so as you're driving or doing something. It's just so efficient. So those two, I definitely use. So I'm going to find those books on Blinkist and then buy the full books. There you go. <laughs> I guess since you mentioned the venture capital partner, a lot of people who are raising money from BC firms, it's not easy and amazing that you guys obviously embarked on this journey and got the partners. What would be the strategy or what would be advice to some of the founders who are trying to get venture capital financing or an angel investor? As a venture capital investor is expecting a rocket ship. They're investing money in your company. They have a seven to 10 year time horizon and they're looking for a 50 times return on their money. Uh, And so those put you on very different paths. And what they're looking for is very different. An angel investor typically doesn't need as much traction. They're okay with you being a bit earlier on in your life cycle. Whereas a venture capitalist is not giving you money until you have very clear product market fit, very clear revenue and traction, and a team that you've built out that can actually scale your idea in the market. Uh, And they're also often looking for things like recurring revenue, international growth, etc. So not every company is the type of company that a venture capitalist would back. And that doesn't mean your company is bad. It just means that, you know, maybe you've built something that isn't suited to that rocket ship of VC. And and that's totally fine. So I guess the advice is read venture deals. Again, when you're reaching out to investors, know who you're reaching out to, what they're looking for, and why they would want to invest in you before you ever send that email. Otherwise, you're going to get about 97 no's. And listen, you're going to get 97 no's anyways. So the other piece of advice is have a thick skin. When you talk to investors, they've probably spent about a total of 30 seconds thinking about your industry and your business before they chat with you. And they're going to give you all kinds of opinions on why your business is going to fail or why they're not going to invest. And you should hear those pieces of feedback and, you know, take them with a grain of salt. Some of them might be really valid, but they don't know your business as well as you do. And so you do have to remember that you're the expert in the space, but that you should be trying to glean some constructive insights when you can. I'm so glad you touched upon, you know, you are going to hear so many no's and how you deal with it is just having, I guess, thick skin. Could you talk more about your process? Obviously, sometimes you have days that are really crappy and some days that you feel like you're on top of the world and everything is working out. How do you deal with the bad days when somebody tells you no and you keep hearing no 25 days in a row and you just feel like you're not making progress? 
that's the existential question I don't think any of us have the answer to, but I'll tell you how I try to mitigate it. The benefit of having my husband as my co-founder, one of my best friends is our CMO. Uh, we have a really tight-knit team. I always say, we're all going to have really bad days. The key is just not having them on the same days. <laughs> so, you know, last week our CMO was having a freak out about this thing. And I said, stop stressing out. It's all going to be okay. And I was kind of the one comforting her. The next day I was having a freak out and Kevin was comforting me. And so I think that's really the key is have this network of people around you, whether that's investors, board members, advisors, team members, and family who, when you're having a bad day, they're there to say, it's all going to be okay. And to kind of show the light at the end of the tunnel. And I always use the phrase, the only way through is through. It's like when you're running a marathon, you know, the only way to get to the finish line is to put one foot in front of the other and it's going to be painful and it's going to suck and you're going to want to quit. But when you get to the finish line, it's going to be worth all the pain you endured. And so every time I'm having a bad day, I always remind myself, the only way through is through. This is one of those painful moments of the marathon. But if I don't keep going, then I'm not going to get to that finish line. It sounds like an inspirational quote on Instagram, but it does actually help. It will be an inspiration quote on Instagram after, after <laughs> we're done. It will be an inspirational quote. So yes. And listen, my, my other key is boxing and working out. Like there's no way to relieve stress or relieve aggression like exercise. So I'm, I'm not a mindful person. I don't meditate. I'm like totally the opposite of that. But I absolutely believe it's fundamental to have an outlet for stress. And for me, that's exercise. And sometimes that's wine, but often it's exercise. And so you have to figure out what that outlet is for you. Maybe it's reading, maybe it's meditating, maybe it's you know, going to a cabin in the woods once a month with no Wi-Fi and just resetting. But whatever it is, figure it out for yourself so that you have set up a structure where you can relieve as much stress as possible. And I agree with you on the exercise. And so for me, it's jogging. And a while ago, we had Josh, he's a personal trainer on the podcast, and he is a Nike master trainer of Canada. And so he is a true believer that if you exercise or even do a little bit of exercise, it's not possible for your mental state to be rebounds back into the positivity space. So if you're feeling negativity coming through or any other feelings, the thing that he recommends is just go do some push-ups, sit-ups, go for a walk, go for a jog. It doesn't have to be an hour. It can be five, 10 minutes, but it really boosts your energy and completely changes your chemistry. So totally agree with that. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for being with me so far. Every guest on the show that comes on here, we ask the three questions. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. Okay. A millennial is resilient and resourceful. Oh, love it. A millennial should be. A millennial should be demanding fulfillment out of their life's work. Definitely have not had this one before. A millennial is not. A millennial is not the stereotype and archetype built by the media. Right. Isn't that crazy? Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Those are awesome answers. For everyone who doesn't I guess, who have never heard about Willful or, you know, wants to find more about you and what you do, where do they find you? Where can they connect with you and learn more? So I am at Erin Burry on pretty much every channel and we are at Willful Wills on pretty much every channel, including TikTok. And you can find out more about the company at willful.co and uh, yeah, hopefully you'll follow along and hopefully I've inspired you to at least have a nugget of a thought about creating your will at some point in the near future. 
uh, by that, I mean everybody who's listening should go on and get the will. Uh, it's very simple. I looked at it today, and this is my process for today. I'm going to go online and do mine. It uh, doesn't take that much time with you guys. You, you make it pretty easy. Well, thank you for being with us. You've been fantastic. Is there anything else you would like to share with us that I might have not asked about? No, thank you for all the insightful questions. I guess I'll just say everyone you think who is an overnight success is not an overnight success. And there's a lot of years of hard work behind every perceived success. So whatever you're doing, whatever path you're on, keep at it. And uh, eventually you'll be one of those overnight successes. 